0: This is the ResetMD podcast. We welcome you to join in on our conversations with fellow physicians. Many of us in medicine reach a point in our careers where we want to make a change. Hit a reset button. Wouldn't it be nice to have some guidance from colleagues who'd been there too and have pearls of wisdom to share? These well-being conversations will cover a range of topics, Thriving in Medicine, Physician Health, Burnout Prevention, Work-Life Integration, Practice Optimization, Advocacy, and Support. And we'll just have some fun doing it. Listen in and start your reset. She's also been a big proponent of advocacy in several spaces that I also have lots of interest. She's a podcaster. She's the co-executive producer of The Day Shift. And I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Leon.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting to be a part of your podcast also.
0: Thank you. I would love for you to start with telling our listeners today a little bit about you and what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, so my current position is that I am a scientific editor of digital health for Jameer Publications, which is an open access scientific journal publisher, uh, specifically in the areas of digital health and health informatics. So it lines up really nicely with a lot of the background work uh, that I've done, uh, and also my professional training as well, um, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit more as we go through today's episode.
0: Yeah. Yes. And as we talked about kind of our theme for the podcast, which is uh, resetting, whether that be resetting your circumstance or resetting your mindset, different ways for you to get to where you want to be in your life and your career. What have been your resets along the way?
1: Yeah. So it's a great question. I have had a very, very nonlinear career um, as I think most people who know me in any professional or friendly space uh, already know. Um, but I would probably say since I finished residency, I've had probably three major resets. Um, so I don't know where you want me to begin. Maybe I can start chronologically or whatever's the the best way to go about doing this.
0: Yeah, let's start at the beginning and, and kind of take a tour through your life.
1: Sure. So <laughs> so that's a great way to put it, a tour through my life, right? Because one of the things that I would say that probably cuts across the entire trend of my resets is that work and life uh, are just life. They are inextricably connected. And so my resets are often Certainly, you can see that they're professional resets, but they have been significantly influenced by personal choices, um, and so my first reset, I would say, probably happened. Uh, it's probably a pretty normal one, I would say, is one after I finished residency and took on a pretty standard clinician educator role for a couple of years as a primary care internist. And so it was during that role around the time I might be dating myself here. <laughs> but it was around that time when there was a push for federal meaningful use of the electronic health record incentive programs, as well as a greater interest in things like the NCQA or the National Committee on Quality Assurance patient centered medical home recognition programs. So. Uh, as you are nodding here, you're probably familiar with the increased drive at the time by such programs to increase our ability in primary care to be able to monitor and improve population health. So, all those things about chronic disease um, quality metrics and ensuring that preventive disease services, uh, screening services are all provided accordingly, those were all things that we were learning how to better collect that information information, collect it accurately report about it, and if there were gaps in care that were appropriate, and needed to be addressed, that those there were mechanisms and workflows in place to be able to address those these are all, of course, still issues that (laughs) primary care practices still uh, work on addressing to varying success. Um, But it was really that time when I realized that I wanted to learn more about how to do that and how that worked in more detail. So that was my first reset, and I decided to go back to fellowship. So I went from my uh, attending position went back to do a medical informatics fellowship at the VA in California, where I'm originally from. Um, And during that fellowship, it was a great opportunity to be able to learn some new skills, learn more about the field, which to me at the time was very new and exciting. Um, It still is relatively new, but there are many, many more established people who have been in it for decades longer. Um, But it was a really, great opportunity to be able to start uh, networking within that space also.
0: Yeah, I am uh, very familiar with all of those metrics as a primary care internist as well, and the, the pros and cons of that, uh, those programs for physicians and for patients. But, but I agree with you. It's, you know, when we see something that's new and we find that, you know, there's interest that we have in it and there's something that we could possibly improve about it, it's a big driver for a lot of physicians to, to make some changes and resets. And, and for you, it sounded like there was some curiosity, but there was also that push to, we, we could do something a little bit differently here and and make it better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so some of the things that I had started getting involved in, in my attending job before that was to work with the people who were, um, running the IT systems, the electronic health record, making improvements, talking with them about reporting and things like that. And so indeed you're right. Like, I think this is a very organic way that many primary care doctors, whatever setting they're in, start getting into this space of system improvement. Um, So I did that for about a year and a half in my fellowship to learn more. Um, And then I decided from there to, and this isn't a reset, but it's sort of trying to like so-called get back get back on track, right? Um, I went back into a clinician educator role again. And uh the difference was that for that setting, I actually started working in a setting where it was sort of a pilot. And the primary idea was to integrate telemedicine into the practice as a routine part of care, which nowadays, the last two years of course, doesn't really sound like a big deal, but this was like six to eight years ago. <laughs> so at the time we we were a pilot practice, uh, so-called bricks and clicks model, where about half of our um, visits that we did for patients, about half of them were either video or telephone visits, but they were our practices patients. So the bricks and clicks is like the clicks are the telehealth part, right? And the bricks are, you know, if you needed to, because of clinical reasons um, or because of patient preference, if we needed to see a person in person to do, let's say an EKG, do a urine dip, do a pelvic exam, you know, whatever those in-person things that we just don't have the telehealth capabilities for. Still, um, those were possible to do and to do in a continuity setting.
0: Yeah, and so really that was creating this fun, this kind of hybrid that would work really well for for you and for your patients. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So that was really exciting, actually, at the time to join that group to try out this new pilot um, and also to integrate uh, wellness coaching. So we had, as part of the team, for example, a dietitian who was a wellness coach, um, someone who's an exercise physiologist who was a wellness coach. So we had a little bit of a variety of uh, skill sets within the team actually to help people to do all the things that we want to try to achieve in primary care for our patients.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of uh, practices are trying to do that with kind of a lifestyle medicine model, but also again being uh, available for the patient and having these resources in different ways. I know the, the patient-centered medical homes that seem to do it the best have all of these different resources. And so it's, it's really an interesting pilot. So how yeah. that was a pilot, as you said, kind of what, what happened with that? And, and, and was that something that you continued to be involved with or made a pivot uh, because of what you've learned from that?
1: Yeah, so that leads to my second reset. (laughs) So um, as you can tell, as a pilot, it's a pretty, um, let's say, dynamic environment. Uh, The schedule was quite irregular. Uh, The demands were pretty high in terms of making improvements and changes and things. And so I actually started experiencing a bit of burnout myself, um, which at the time I did not really know what that was actually. Um, Of course, we know better now. You're in the space as well for promoting physician well-being, um, just like I am. And so at that time, I was starting to feel those feelings of disengagement from the work, feeling a bit apathetic, feeling like I didn't have that energy. Let's maybe not passion, let's say, doesn't always have to be that case, but I was not having that energy and drive, it felt like every day was starting to become more and more difficult to get up and do. Um, And that might have just been for me just trying to adapt to a really, like I said, a really quick changing environment. Um, So there's a lot of exciting things that were happening in the in the practice, but at the same time I found it really difficult to find my own sense of balance. Um, and so I started looking for another job locally. Um, and at the time also I was dating then my now husband. Um, and so this is where I start to go back into what I said before about how work and life are kind of the same um, at least yeah for for our profession and our career trajectories. Um, and so at the time my husband, well, boyfriend at the time. Um, He was headhunted actually to start a research institute at a university in the Netherlands. (laughs) Right. And so big pivot. Yes. Yes. So you can see where this is going. Um, But for me, I also had a very personal, let's say not to sound too cliche, but a bucket list item, I guess, or two was for me to live in another country, because I hadn't up until that point, and also to learn another language. I just did not know before that it was going to be Dutch.
0: <laughs> not the most common language language you would think about when you say you're going to learn a new language.
1: Exactly. The last numbers that I saw were like 23 million people in the world speak Dutch, <laughs> which is not too many, actually. So um, that actually led to then the second reset, as you can tell. So um, at that time, both of us were willing to take a leap to make some changes. Uh, So within less than a six-month period, we basically left our jobs and uh, got engaged, got married, moved to a new country, uh, and then got started again.
0: (laughs) Gosh, let's talk about a busy six months for you, but an exciting six months.
1: It was and, definitely an exciting time. Yeah.
0: And we um, here at the podcast, I, I haven't talked to a physician yet who's practiced internationally for a period of time. So this will be really interesting to, to hear about your experience as you're you're you know moving into medicine in a, a, a different country. You're learning the language, so there there are lots of um, new things to experience, and so how has that been for you?
1: Yeah, so um, it's been a long process and one that has been filled with a lot of personal reflection about, uh, let's say, professional goals and my life goals overall. And the reason I say that is that, of course, you know, just like it is in the United States for international medical graduates who uh, enter the United States with the intent of getting recognized as a physician and pursuing physician practice independently, um, I was also expected to learn the language to a professional level of fluency. And in this case, of course, completely from scratch because I had no reason to learn Dutch prior. Um, So I had to learn the the language completely from scratch, Um, and then also I had to take a number of exams, which actually uh, are very similar to all the USMLE exams in the United States, but in Dutch language. So that was a fun process. (laughs) Um, And like I said, one that is very uh, defining in many ways, because I, of course, encountered a lot of times where I wondered, you know, is my, are my language skills good enough? Do people understand what I'm saying? Am I able to like dig up, you know, some of these questions about basically step one content, uh, examination content is the sort of stuff that I had to restudy and learn the medical terminologies for. And it's not really easy when you're more than a decade, well over a decade out from having taken such exams before. Um, there's also a clinical skills component. I know that of course the USMLE step two, uh, CS is being phased out, but that's not the case here. That's part of the required exams for MD recognition. Um, and so ultimately it took me over four years to get recognized as a medical doctor. And I'm just talking about as like your medical degree or having graduated. Um, it's a whole other process and story to get recognized as an internal medicine physician, Um, which, unfortunately, in that case, that influences my third
0: reset. And that's so, you know, there's so many interesting aspects of that as you're talking about that and really just gives you that awareness and that understanding of what our colleagues in medicine who come to the United States from another country, who've already completed their medical uh, licensure, their degrees there, and then and then have to do it again. Um, and we, you know, we understand that that's difficult. But you actually went through that process and and have a personal understanding of that, and can can use that, I think, as well in your experiences moving forward. When you, um, before we move on to your last reset, I'm still very curious. As you're doing this in, um, in the Netherlands and you're learning the language and you're going through this process, was it basically your interactions with patients going back to like a, a residency level? Did you have a supervisor and you were that you had to report up to and, and to to kind of run your differentials and your plan by in that capacity?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, And so it starts getting into some of the things that I found that were similar and different uh, within both the medical education system here, as well as the practice system. Um, And so the funny thing is that, so once I got my conditional registration as a medical doctor, uh, they require that I had for all at a minimum, you have to at least do three months of work under supervision. So you're basically working like, a high functioning sub intern or an intern basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I did carry my own patients, not too many of them because part of this also, of course, involved me navigating the health system in a second language in my case. Um, but uh, indeed the expectation was that I would I was part of an academic team, awards team, where I would report directly to the attending. And in this case, they were uh, really understanding of my situation and were uh, just said, you know, that's totally fine. There's no reason that I have to work as a medical student to report to a resident and to report to an attending, that sort of, you know, line of command, I guess, Right. Um, And so in that case, I reported my own patients to the attending and for the most part, you know, everything is sort of, I don't want to say everything is identical because there are differences in certain clinical practice guidelines and that um, can make a difference. For example, in the Netherlands, um, antibiotic resistance rates are extremely low and there are a variety of reasons for that but you can literally treat like a community acquired pneumonia in the hospital with like a penicillin basically wow um, and <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just like totally unheard of in the United States, right? So of course, there are many ways, things like that, where there are some uh, differences in clinical practice uh, choices and decisions. And so those are the kinds of things where I needed help, because, of course, I'm not familiar with some of those things. Um, But by and large, my ability to be able to, as long as I could communicate well with a patient, um, I could collect a history, I could do a physical, you know, all the usual things, right? Those, mm-hmm. those are all expected to be, be skills that I would already have as a practicing internist previous to coming here.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I um, recently heard of a few physicians in my state uh, in different specialties. Who've taken a year and gone, are going, or have gone to New Zealand, and so different mm-hmm. yeah, countries, yeah. I think, have the different levels almost of re- reciprocity, where you know there's there are different requirements, and so it's it's a little bit different. There's not the language issues that you're talking about, and so I think that that sometimes is an aspect of that. And I, uh, going back a moment, you know, you had mentioned that you really spent a lot of time in reflection. Of what you wanted for your life, your goals, what you wanted professionally, and and as you were starting to tell us that you've you've kind of made this change that you're announcing um, or that you announced earlier, you know, really also interested in what that process is like for you for that reflection and how did you come to make these changes that you're you're doing now?
1: Yeah. So some of it. Um definitely had to do with this process of professional recognition. You know, as you said, even in Uh, settings where like, for example, going to New Zealand, there is a certain level of reciprocity that exists and you don't have the language barrier. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have learned a lot about professional recognition across borders and um, the variety of influences that have nothing to do with the practice of medicine that influence whether that's possible or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say part of this in terms of the personal reflection was you know is this worth it is this what i want to do that i want to be a recognized practicing academic internal medicine physician in this country um and it could have been any country right not not the netherlands specifically um and of course you know, being an internist is such an important part of who we are because that's how we grew up basically in our adult life, right? And so it was a really intense process for me to think about this and say, like, how much do I want this? How, how important is it to me to see this through to the very end? And so that was the personal part. And the part of, of which I recognized I had no control was what the legal Rules are. And the rules in the EU are such that you must, for the specialty of internal medicine specifically, it might vary for others, you must have pre- done a specialty residency in internal medicine of five years or more. And so in the Netherlands, it's six years. Now, if you look at duty hours, it's a little bit different. (laughs) But in the end, six years of internal medicine in the Netherlands actually does total to more than the duty hours of three years in the United States. Um, But this was a hard stop for me. It was insurmountable for me to be able to meet the requirement that they had by law in the European Union um, to be able to have had five years of internal medicine residency. And despite having an appeals process, which I actually went through, it was not possible to get partial recognition. So the end result was that you must do five years minimum of internal medicine residency to be able to be registered as an internal medicine physician in this country.
0: Yeah, it kind of it goes back to that identity that we have for ourselves and how much we continue to push to either maintain that identity or maintain that purpose. And I think that those kind of go together. And I think that's so valuable what you just said is sometimes we get on a path and we continue to go and go and go. We don't stop and check in and say, is this really where I still want to go? You know, I want to keep mm-hmm. on this hike. And And what you just so artfully said was, you know, you get to make this decision along the way. And, and at some point there may be something that changes that, that path, that, that motion forward for you, that you say, this isn't just, this is not right for me right now. And I think that that's really, really important to continue to do that on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you hit it right on there is, and one of the things that I would say that's most important in any journey, whatever it is, is that like, listen, you just have to listen and pay attention to your own like internal messages and feelings and instincts. I mean, even if you don't articulate it, if you are sort of aware of what those signals are for you, I I have found that um, those signals have been incredibly important in terms of helping me figure out my way forward, because while I don't practice internal medicine, uh, in the Netherlands or practice in-person clinical medicine period, um, at this point, uh, because I have made the decision, uh, not to pursue it any further, um, I am like, I feel like my third reset has sort of led me to a good and balanced place where at least so far for the couple of weeks that I've been in my new job, um, I would say things are going pretty well. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and as you say, there's so many things that we're interested in. There's so many passions and that everything that we've done, uh, everything you've done up to this point is an experience that helps you get to where you want to be that way forward that we talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing now, this this new uh, reset that you have in your your career Mm -hmm. and your life, as we're talking about, they're the same. That's
1: exactly right. So um, my newest reset uh, as of the beginning of this year is that I am in this full-time scientific editor role, um, which I'm really excited about. And here's the reason why. I... I maybe have not emphasized it enough throughout my career here in describing my sort of journey. But one of the things that I have found to be central as like a philosophy of my practice is that I think communication is key. And that communication, while maybe in the beginning when I was, you know, getting my master's in public health, my focus was on health literacy and overcoming health literacy barriers barriers for patients, um, I would say actually on reflection, part of this reflection process is that communication in your team, communication with your patients, communication with the general public now, of course, is increasingly important for a variety of different reasons, um, and so what i haven't emphasized is this like focus and this philosophy for me on communication um, that has been i think the common thread across my very nonlinear career um, even through to learning a new language and trying to get recognized in a new system healthcare system um, and it's funny because i actually i wrote an editor's column um, for the society of general internal medicine (SGIM) forum newsletter last year where I reflected on my experience in journalism when I was in high school. So I was a features editor. I was a section editor for the features. So like book reviews, movie reviews, um, and other, a variety of other types of random, I guess you could say puff pieces or something. But, <laughs> but um, when I was in high school, I was already into newspaper and sort of written forms of communication. And it's just so funny because at that time, I remember these times where like our production process for publishing a newspaper involved a combination of Adobe Photoshop uh, and Photoshop, (laughs) Um, Photoshopping all sorts of things, text pictures or whatever. And we would literally print these out on gigantic pieces of paper, put them on a light box, get an exacto knife and a big ruler, chop up the pieces and then use a glue stick to stick them together so that way we could lay them out flat in the back of somebody's car drive them over to a pin- printing press and then print out the newspaper for a school newspaper
0: <laughs> Oh my gosh look where we are now look where we've been oh. look where we are now it's amazing
1: I know uh. this is like 20 years ago right more than 20 years ago Anyway so so it started back then and i think even then you know, somehow I wanted to find a way to to incorporate more writing and editing into my work. And while I won't proclaim to be like some prolific writer, um, and creator of, you know, various communication and media forms or whatever, I think in a way I have found my way back to something that was really important to me back then even. Um, and so, I have found my way into doing um, scientific editing and uh, I haven't done a lot of writing for the role yet, but I really find a lot of joy and um, a lot of, I guess, uh, what is the word I'm looking for here? Gratification, I guess, in being able to help people to communicate more clearly, whatever that may be whether that's writing some perspective piece, writing about science that has been done and reporting clearly about it in a way that's reproducible and is in keeping with you know, current uh, appropriate methods to do science um, and standards for reporting and things like that. And so I'm really learning a lot more now about the scientific publishing space. And I'm really excited to keep doing it um, because I work with a wonderful supportive team and we also, you know, make changes in workflows very quickly which is something that of course, sometimes we don't see as much in healthcare. (laughs) Um, And so I, I, I think that just my journey has somehow found its way back after a couple of decades back to something that I was already doing, like way back when, when I was a kid.
0: (laughs) I think that exploration of, you know, what intrigued you as a kid, whether it be a teenager or a young child, and how can you incorporate more of that in your day as an adult is such a fun thing to think about. And, and hearing you talk about, you know, this is, we went through all this to put out this paper, you know, we were really invested in that. And, and your story, I mean, as we talked about as an author, as a podcast producer, as we're doing this, this is all of our ways to communicate. And I think as a primary care physician, we do so much teaching. Of patients and of our neighbors and whoever else will listen, I think that it's just a natural extension of that. And so it sounds like you are, you know, just at the beginning of this space and are exploring all the different ways that you can have this impact as an editor, whether that be with putting out the most concise uh, educational information or whether that's also, you know, putting your stamp on it, putting your information in there as well. And so it's so exciting to see this um, come to, come to a fruition for you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll just add to, I mean, this wasn't something that was only linked to my high school experience. I will say also that, you know, just the recent years of having put myself in a very new space personally and professionally um, has motivated more reflection and writing on my own part. Um, so I've written about my experiences in a couple of different blogs or you know perspective pieces uh, and also for my own personal purposes. But I also um, I mentioned the Society of General Internal Medicine and the newsletter. I'm actually the editor-in-chief for that newsletter and have the opportunity there uh, at least for the past year year, and a half or so that I've been in that role, um, I've had the opportunity to be able to run it. It's obviously not a peer-reviewed publication and it's obviously a lot smaller scale than a journal, um, a scientific journal. But on the other hand, that also ended up being sort of a serendipitous way for me to also get a little closer to doing publishing um, in an academic and scholarly sense, right? Um, And so I think that was also something that I had an opportunity to sort of stay LinkedIn connected to network important networks professionally, where I was able to uh, be exposed to and also be sponsored for these important opportunities that helped me also reflect so there's some sort of like virtuous cycle here that I'm trying to get at describing. Um, Maybe my communication skills aren't working so well at the moment for that. But um, hopefully it comes across that the idea is that, you know, all these things tied together, like we work within this sort of network that's obviously it's not physically important to be in the same space, but to be able to be connected by our interests and by the work that we do, uh, by the work that needs to be done, uh, whether that's advocacy or otherwise, um, and being able to see and be able to hear from others that there are other ways and that we can do the work that we want to do and to have an impact still using the expertise that we have.
0: I think that's so important. I think particularly for early career physicians to hear as you're starting to like figure out where you're going to put your energy and your attention and how do you how do you learn about new things? How do you get into those spaces? um i as i do some leadership coaching for uh physicians it's really that that mentor sponsor space you know how do you find what you like and i i volunteered to do some stuff uh for well-being and i found out i liked it and i kind of continued to evolve in that as i've you know i didn't just wake up one morning and say i'm going to start a podcast i kind of started you know, exploring it in different ways. And so I think we do that in so many different capacities in our life. And, and we really are trying to be intentional of how we do that in our professional careers. But sometimes it is it is serendipity. You know, you get involved in something and then make a connection, realize that's something you want to do more of. And I think that's the, that's the fun part of it. You know, we never know where it's going to go. We can try to plan it all, but there's always going to be something that you know we can't plan for that's gonna surprise us in that way. Mm-hmm. And thinking yeah. about that.
1: Yeah, I think the one thing I would add too is also there's this marrying of interest too, right? Like you said, um you serendipitously got into doing physician well-being promotion type of work. Um and of course now you're like an expert in it. <laughs> so um I would say that one of the things that I sort of over the years have gotten into um, through, you know, really wonderful collaborations with brilliant people, um, is of course the diversity, equity, and inclusivity promotion space. Um, as you mentioned already, for example, the day shift podcast is one way I won't claim to be the, uh, the instigator, let's say, I think, uh, my my colleague and friend, Dr. Tammy Lynn, probably wouldn't like me to use that word, but <laughs> um, she's the, it was her brainchild to start it. Um, and then also, you know, the opportunities within other professional circles. So I'm also a member in, of the American Medical Informatics Association, where um, clinical informatics as a career pipeline is. Um, really needs a lot more diversity and inclusivity in it. And so, you know, there's an opportunity to promote it in that space too. And so what I would really like to see one of my passions now, given where I am and the sort of space that I'm learning more about in publishing is the use of, um, of equitable and inclusive language in the things that we write and that we publish, Um, And this is sort of a personal interest, I think, that's grown for me because some of the leadership roles that I've had in AMIA have had to do with biased language that can show up when you're sponsoring someone in a written form, for example, in letters of recommendation, award nomination letters, um, or when people are being uh, viewed for, you know, hiring for a new position or something else. Um, And so it's really just amazing how insidious this bias can be in what we write. And we mean well when we sponsor people for such things, but um, I think there's really a lot more opportunity to be able to improve what we write and how we write to be more equitable um, and to not propagate biases about certain um, genders or uh, people of different uh, identifying characteristics.
0: Yeah, I, th- that, I agree. That space is, is something that, we continue to learn how to how to do that better and how to kind of challenge our own belief systems and that that um, you know bias that's just behind the scenes that we really don't know that it's there until we're educated. We think about it more. We reflect on that, and so I I think that space again is so important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And so I, I mention it. partially of course because i i have developed this sort of like passion for it as you can hear but also that this is also in my reflections a way for me to bring together the different things that i'm interested in right and i think that's the the ideal that we all sort of strive for is to find places where we're like oh i'm interested in this 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 and this thing because i'm a generalist right i'm a general internal medicine physician but a generalist in many other ways but how can I bring those together and and have like the most impact possible? And I really hope that my growing interest here was able to do so in in the sort of coming
0: months and years. We'll see. <laughs> no, I love that that you know that intersection of all of those interests is is that secret sauce. Another one of our guests had um, mentioned um, the concept of ikigai, if I'm saying that correctly, where, you know, you get these kind of overlapping circles uh, to, you know, find that like sweet spot in the middle. That's just everything about you is, is right there. Well, let's, let's have a little bit of fun as we finish up. I uh, didn't warn you that we're going to do this, but I promise it's not—it's not scary. Um, we'd like to do just a, a couple little rapid-fire questions to to get to know you a little bit better. What are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand?
1: Yeah, so, um, I don't have a physical book on my nightstand. I tend to do a lot of eBooks and audiobooks. So, the most recent, let's say, audiobook that I have would be. Uh, Well, let's say it's written as a book by Anne Lamott. It's called Small Victories, Spotting Improbable Moments of Grace. Um, And I haven't finished it yet, but each chapter, let's say, is an essay and a very poignant reflection about sort of human connection and connectedness. Um, And I've really enjoyed the essays that I have read slash listened to so far. I'll let you know what I think once I'm finished, but so far so good.
0: Good. I'll check it out. That author is one of my mother-in-law's favorite authors. So she often sends me little snippets of information from her little quotes as well. What's your happy place?
1: Uh, My happy place is maybe it's not a physical place, but more of a sort of mindset or feeling that I get especially when I travel to new places, which of course has been a bit curtailed in the recent couple of years. But I think I have a happy place when I travel to a new place, maybe with my husband, maybe with not without. (laughs) Um, But there's this opportunity to be able to immerse in a new culture, a new environment, learn how to navigate the place, which I know sometimes can feel very unsettling um, outside of your comfort zones. But I really find a lot of joy in being able to figure out how different things work and sort of comparing them to my experiences of others. Um, and so it's not really a physical place, but let's say a mind place
0: to be in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just a, just an experience uh, and being immersed in it, as you said. Mm-hmm. And that makes me wonder when you were talking about your bucket list and what you wanted to do. What's, where would you go next on your travel bucket list that you haven't been?
1: Ooh, where would I want to go? There are a lot of places that I want to go. Um, let's say maybe some of the recent ones my husband and I have talked about, um, which we couldn't go to over the winter break because of travel restrictions, but we talked about going to Bali and into Indonesia we also talked about going to Singapore and Malaysia, um, and maybe some various tropical islands (laughs) like Seychelles and other places. Um, so we have a lot of places we want to travel to together. Uh, so I look forward to the time when we'll be able to do that a little bit more, um,
0: readily. I I do too. And it sounds like kind of getting out of the northern winter and heading a little bit to the warmer weather is is intriguing for for many of us so
1: i'm not too far from the north sea here so uh (laughs) we get a lot of rain and wind uh and so i would look very much forward to some warmer weather
0: (laughs) and then my last question since we're talking about travel and new places Mm -hmm. you know what's been the most surprising um, fun thing that you've experienced in your new uh, your new home?
1: Well, maybe if I speak concretely, there are two things, let's say. The concrete thing that I would say um, that I think is wonderful about where I am is the ability to bicycle everywhere. The bicycling infrastructure is fantastic um, and very safe and separate from cars, which I think is a common problem uh, where I'm originally from. Uh, And so you can bicycle so many places, which is wonderful, I love that. Um, And that's sort of the concrete part. Um, The more less tangible part in terms of a specific thing is this sense of, you know, one of the core, core principles in this country is the principle of solidarity and the sense of community and sort of social connectedness. And I think that you can almost feel it, I think, in your day to day life, because um, by and large, the way the social structures and systems are, the majority, almost all of the population are pretty well cared for um, in And, and that means through social programs and healthcare and all sorts of other things. And so that's less tangible, but on the other hand, it's just has the sense of feeling very, very, very safe, almost everywhere you go. And I love that.
0: That's a great feeling to have, to have that, that sense of safety and, and, and it goes also when you're on your bicycle and not being run (laughs) over by a car, but it's also that, that mental space of just feeling like that you've got, somebody's got your back. There's that community, as you said. Absolutely. Well, as we finish as a communicator, as an educator, and as a person who's done this work of, of kind of reflecting and thinking, you know, what's right for me? what would be the takeaways that you would leave our listeners with kind of those pearls that we talk about in medicine to kind of sum up some of your experience and, and what you'd like others to, to take with them.
1: Yeah, I I think we've said them already. And so just to bring emphasis to them, um, listening to that internal voice of yours is so important because For me in my journey, for the personal reasons and the professional reasons, um, that has helped me to figure out which direction to go. It is not always easy to listen to that voice because of a variety of reasons um, that are maybe external to you. But I think that is the most important thing that you need to be able to acknowledge that I have been able, uh, that I have needed to acknowledge in order to be able to. Sort of move ahead and find a place that works for me and so if ever there's this feeling this nagging voice that's like something doesn't feel right listening to that and then thinking about and being prepared for change is incredibly important it can be very difficult because of inertia or fear uh, or other things but um, i think that that key part of listening Um, And then, you know, it doesn't have to be an impulsive decision overnight to change something. It is obviously something that you can take time to figure out, right? Weeks, months, whatever that may be, but um, it's worth it. So that's one thing, the listening. And then the two, we talked about the sort of mentorship, sponsorship spaces, and maintaining networks. I think that's incredibly important. I have been so lucky to be in several different networks where I've been able to learn more about a variety of different topics. Um, As you can tell from just our conversation, the various spaces that I've been able to be involved in, um, they are wonderful for my own development, but also you meet just a lot of really interesting and great people um, who are there as friends. They're there as professional cheerleaders <laughs> for you, um, and there is just so much to learn from other people. And so, maintaining and growing networks, I think, is also a key part of um, being able to find what works for you, find your resets. I guess.
0: Yeah, as you were saying, both of those kind of takeaways. It it just reinforces why. I love doing this podcast and having these conversations with people. It's that, you know, listening to other people, learning from them, and then just, you know, I feel like I know you now. I feel like you're part of our, you know, my network now. But (laughs) I think, I think, you know, having these real conversations, anytime that we can have them with other physicians and, and just pass along, um, you know, our experiences, it really does help create this community of physicians in general, where we know it's okay to have these conversations and to talk about these things and and to make those changes when we're listening to our inner voice that says, you know, it's time, we need to do something different, or, you know, we, we need to dig in more here because this is where we want to be. So I, I really appreciate your time um, speaking with me today and, and sharing and i wish you the best in your new resets and endeavors in your life and i won't say in career because i love how you said you know there's not work and life this is life and work is an aspect of your life and and having having that as a guiding principle i think is is really nice thank you Thanks for listening in on this conversation at ResetMD. If you'd like to reach out to us and continue the conversation for well-being, email us at resetmdpodcast at gmail.com.